Well, hello, everyone. It's great to be back with you uh, here on the never-ending struggle. As you know, we look at different chapters in Catholic Church history to see where things have been better, where things have been worse, and to see what guidance we can get out of them for living a Catholic life in the present day, which certainly is a very exciting time if it isn't uh, one of the best. Today, we have a very, very important topic and a very contemporary one. That topic, that subject, that person is Blessed Emperor Charles of Habsburg, the last reigning Emperor of Austria and King of Hungary. He was beatified by Pope John Paul II in 2004. And that's sort of interesting because John Paul II, Karol Wojtyla, was named by his father, a very loyal uh, sergeant major in the emperor's army, for reasons we'll explore shortly. Uh, he named him after his emperor. And so in a very strange way, the pope created his own namesake. I've never heard of that happening in the entire history of the church, so enjoy it. The feast that he was given by Pope John Paul II was, in fact, not the day of his death, which was April the 1st, but October 21st, uh, which in real time right now is tomorrow. You'll be seeing this. It'll be two days in the past. But October 21st is uh, the, fee the uh, anniversary of his wedding to Princess Zita of Bourbon Parma, who herself is a servant of God uh, with a cause of beatification all her own. Obviously, if she is beatified, they'll have a joint feast day, which is exactly why it is that Pope John Paul II did it, because one of the things he wanted to point out about the emperor and his wife was the um, tremendous example they were for married couples. We'll get into that in a minute. Now, unfortunately for Blessed Emperor Carl, Charles Carl, interchangeable, Carl's German, Charles is English. Unfortunately for him, he um, had that most terrible of all things, a defeat. He lost. He was defeated in war, defeated in revolution, and he died penniless on the lonely island of Madeira. Not much of a success as the world sees these things, particularly as he had fallen from the very, very top. Um, but with him were his wife, pregnant with her eighth child, uh, eighth child and their children. And he died a very holy and uh, heroic death, all of which we'll also look at in a few minutes. In a nutshell, this was a man who lost everything, who saw his entire world collapse around him, and yet never gave into despair, never gave into hatred, never stopped hoping and trying. In a word, he's a great example for all of us who live in difficult times. But there are other things we can get from his story. Now, Carl was the great nephew of the Emperor Franz Josef of Austria-Hungary, whom you've seen tons of pictures of, I'm sure, the big, big white uh, sideburns and so forth who ruled Austria-Hungary from 1848 to 1916 when he died and Karl became emperor. So he was very much an Elizabeth II, 
Queen Victoria kind of figure, you know, just there forever. Um, but the House of Habsburg itself, we have to understand a little bit before we can understand Karl and why he was the way he was. Firstly, although not all Habsburgs have been devout, uh, Catholic devotion has been a big, a big part of their ethos. And even those who didn't take the faith that seriously, sooner or later felt they had to conform to it, usually. Um, they certainly did a great deal for the faith during the Counter-Reformation and in fighting the Turks and so forth. Interestingly enough, our very first uh, settlement in the United States at Augustine, Florida, was founded on the Habsburgs, uh, Philip II of Spain. And therein lies the story. Let me give you a very, very quick genealogy, and you'll understand this sort of peculiar family. Basically, in the 1200s, they came from Switzerland to Austria. Uh, they were given Austria when the original family that uh, had ruled it died out, and the Holy Roman Emperor assigned it to them. Uh, in time, they became emperors themselves, and after a while, it was only Habsburgs who would get elected. Now, one of the things about the Habsburgs was that they were not great for fighting wars. They fought them when they had to, but they didn't like fighting them. And if they could avoid it, they would. But there was an old saying, let other nations war. You, or oh happy Austria, marry. And that's exactly what they did. They had a very great fortune in marrying heiresses. So their dominions grew and grew and grew. Most uh, notably, the uh, Emperor Maximilian I, living in the 1400s, uh, married a lady named Mary of Burgundy, who brought with her what are now the Netherlands, Belgium, a good chunk of Eastern France, the so-called Burgundian inheritance. They, in turn, had a son named Philip of Burgundy, or Philip the Handsome, and he married the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella, who you remember sent Columbus to America. Her name was Juana la Loca, Juana the Mad. Sad story. But uh, she and her husband did produce one son uh, who lived, Charles V. And he eventually inherited everything. The Spains, the New World, the Holy Roman Empire, the Netherlands, Sicily, Southern Italy, his was the first empire upon which the sun never set. But he had three major enemies, the French, the Turks, and the Protestants. And between them, he couldn't catch a break. So when he retired in 1548, he divided his empire between his son, who got Spain and America, and his brother, who got the Holy Roman Empire. And so you had the Austrian Habsburgs and the Spanish Habsburgs. All right, well, moving right along, the Spanish Habsburgs died out, and so now the Habsburgs are concentrated in Austria-Hungary. The Napoleonic Wars come along. The title of Holy Roman Emperor is gotten rid of. They replace it with Emperor of Austria. The risings of, uh, well, Napoleon's defeated. Then they have the risings of 1848, and you've got Franz Josef on the throne. And that, in a very, very quick sketch, is the history of the House of Habsburg from the 800s to, the, to, uh, <laughs> to 1848. Now, Franz Josef like, had a very unhappy life in many, many ways. And this was part of Carl's story. 
because, of course, this was the background against which Karl was born. Uh, Karl, uh, Franz Josef's next uh, younger son, or sorry, next younger brother, I should say, Maximilian, accepted the throne of Mexico and was murdered by Benito Juarez, 1867, which was a great tragedy for his brother. His next brother uh, had two sons, Franz Ferdinand and Otto. But Franz Joseph had a uh, son of his own, Crown Prince Rudolf. And when young Karl was born in 1887, it looked very unlikely that he would ever become the heir to the throne. Very, very unlikely. Because, one, uh, Crown Prince Rudolf was there, and although he uh, hadn't had a son yet, he had a daughter. Two, Franz Ferdinand hadn't married yet. And then three, uh, he would probably do so and have children. And so that left uh, left um, Carl very much as the son of the, the spare rather than the heir. Now, Carl had a couple of problems from the very beginning, the biggest of which was that his parents were very poorly suited for each other. His mother, uh, Maria Josefa, was a Saxon princess, very devout, a uh, great lover of the Sacred Heart, all that, but very dour. And her husband, Otto, the father, was a very devil-may-care, gallant, joking, charming kind of fellow. Um, they didn't get on well. And sadly, Otto would end up dying of syphilis because his uh, faithfulness to his wife didn't last. Against this backdrop, however, it's important to bear in mind that like every other Catholic royal house in Europe, the Habsburgs had their own specific kind of devotion and piety, the so-called Pietas Austriaca, a great deal of devotion to the Eucharist, the Passion, uh, especially the instruments of the Passion, some of which they owned, <laughs> uh, the, um, uh, the Blessed Virgin, and particularly Our Lady of Loretto and the Rosary. Um, and then the... Um, the uh, other newer devotion, which was really embraced by the family that came along, was the Sacred Heart. And in fact, um, Carl would become known even as a young boy for his devotion to all of these. Now, in a lot of ways, we can look at Carl as being a wonderful patron for people from difficult families. He uh, got, he loved both his parents, but he got the best out of both of them. The piety of his mother and the charm of his father. Now we'll see where that took him shortly. And we're back. Well, as you'll recall, we had left uh, poor young Carl with his difficult parents. And I have to say that in addition to being a great patron for married couples, as John Paul II pointed out, 
He is a great patron for those from difficult or broken homes. And that's not a small thing. Now, in the meantime, things were happening. His parents, uh, when he was five years old, his parents went to a town uh, in, in Hungary called Chopron, uh, where his father was in the army. And he had a priest tutoring him, the uh, Carl did. He, in turn, had a friend who was an Ursuline nun named Mother Vincentia. And Mother Vincentia, uh, well, she was a stigmatist and she had the gift of prophecy. So she told the priest that his young charge despite everything, would one day be emperor of Austria. And he would be a reward to Austria and the House of Habsburg for all that they had done to the church, but that hell would drive it, would launch its fiercest attacks against him. And that's exactly what happened. So she told him to get together everybody he could to pray for this little boy uh, from that time onward. And they did. And this group, the Gebetsliga, the Prayer League, uh, prayed for him all through his life as heir, as emperor, as exile. And then when he died, took up the cause first for his beatification and now canonization, which is kind of unusual because most organizations like that start after the person dies. This one started when he was all of five. Anyway, so uh, meanwhile, while they were doing what they were doing, other things were happening. For one thing, uh, both uh, Karl, his father, and his uncle, Franz Ferdinand, moved a step closer to the throne when, uh, in 1889, Crown Prince Rudolf was either murdered or committed suicide. This was a very murky occurrence, uh, very much the Kennedy assassination of the 19th century. It took place at a uh, hunting lodge called Meierling. And today, uh, Meierling is a uh, Carmelite convent because uh, Franz Josef had his uh, son's hunting lodge dismantled and turned into a convent for the nuns. And to this day, they pray for the souls of Rudolf and his mistress who died with him. Very sad story. But more was to follow for poor Franz Josef. In 1898, his beloved wife, Cece, uh, was murdered in Lake Geneva on a ferry boat. Um, and then shortly after that, in 1900, he would get into a squabble with Franz Ferdinand. The reason being that Franz Ferdinand, now the heir to the throne, wanted uh, to marry a woman who was not a royal. She was a noble woman, the Countess Kotek, but she was not a royal. So there was a great deal of jumping up and down, a great deal of fighting, a great deal of gnashing of teeth. The end result was a deal was made. He could marry her, but she would never be empress. She would only be the Duchess of Hohenberg, and their children would never inherit the throne. They would be not Habsburgs, but Hohenbergs. Uh, and that was the deal Franz Ferdinand made. Now, this is where you get some inkling of Franz Ferdinand's true greatness, because given that his younger scapegrace brother's son was going to take the place of his own children, on the line of succession, it would have been so easy for him to really hate young Carl. But no, 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 no. Instead, he uh, provided a second home for him, 
a very happy home because he and his wife were extremely happy. They had a number of children and they gave the young Carl the only example of a truly happy uh, marriage in his family. Uh, it's also interesting that Franz Ferdinand too is a great devotee of the Sacred Heart. When eventually he and his wife would be murdered in Sarajevo, they were both wearing uh, medals of the Sacred Heart and they were uh, in the midst of the nine days, to, uh, nine, uh, nine first Fridays. So the thing is that Carl was presented with a problem. The problem was that his beloved great uncle, the old emperor, and his beloved uncle, Franz Ferdinand, were not just at loggerheads over personal issues. They had political issues. Uh, Franz Ferdinand very much wanted to federalize the empire with uh, the different nationalities, including those in Hungary, uh, becoming autonomous under the, under the Habsburgs. Um, and in foreign policy, he wanted to move away from such a close connection with Germany and move in the direction of uh, Britain and Russia with the idea of uh, forming an alliance that would help keep the French and the Germans quiet. Again, that was very, very much in Habsburg tradi uh, diplomatic tradition. You know, they, they weren't ones for great, uh, great crusades against the other Christian powers. They just wanted it. Shh, be quiet. Don't don't make noise. Just be quiet. Because, of course, ladies and gentlemen, although that doesn't sound very inspiring, it does allow the majority of people to live their lives with a minimum of annoyance. And that, I think, is a good thing for leaders to think about what actually does benefit their people as opposed to what makes them feel good about themselves. Anyway, so uh, Franz Joseph, on the other hand, to uh, arrive at the, at the then current constitutional arrangements with Hungary had almost sweat blood decades before, and he didn't want to change anything. And then uh, the same was true for foreign affairs. Uh, he had had, in the first part of his reign, a disastrous run of luck, partly his own fault, to be honest. Uh, in 1848, I mentioned the Great Risings, the Hungarians had risen, uh, not all of them, but a big chunk of the Magyars rose against the Habsburgs, proclaimed a republic. And the uh, minorities in Hungary, the Slovaks, the Romanians, the Croats, the Serbs, etc., rallied to the dynasty. Well, it then required Russian aid to finally put the thing down. A few years later, 1853 comes along, uh, the Crimean War. Britain and France go to war with Russia over Turkey. Little Sardinia joins Britain and France for reasons that will be obvious in a moment. Um, Russia asks Austria to come in on its side. Now, there wasn't a lot that Britain and France could have done to Austria, and there wasn't much that Austria could have done for Russia. But it would have been a gesture. Unfortunately, Franz Josef didn't do it. And so... When uh, he needed an ally against France and Sardinia in 1859, he didn't have one, and the result was being pushed out of Italy. When he needed an ally against Prussia in 1866, he didn't have one, and so he was pushed out of Germany. Well, now he had to make a deal with the Hungarians, and that deal meant giving the Hungarian government, specifically the Liberal Party, complete control of the country. And that, in turn, 
subjected the, the uh, minorities who had risen for them in 1848 uh, over to modernization. So that created a certain amount of ill feeling. This was what Franz Ferdinand wanted to adjust. Now, Karl, on the one hand, agreed with his uncle, Franz Ferdinand, but on the other, he understood his great uncle, and he managed to stay on good terms with both of them. Meanwhile, he's growing up, and he needs a wife. One appeared. He had a cousin, Zita Bourbon Parma, who was descended from the Bourbons of France, Spain, and Italy. Her, husband, her father had been the Duke of Parma until he was driven out by the Sardinians. Uh, he had had two wives, 12 children by each of them, so she grew up in a household of 24 kids, which is quite a few. Uh, a very devout household. Two of her sisters became nuns, Benedictines, and she herself would be close to the Benedictines for the entirety of her life. She was very pretty, and she and Carl had been uh, playmates when they were young. Uh, there was a rumor about that she was going to be proposed to by somebody else, so he jumped and proposed to her. She accepted, and on October 21st, 1911, 111 years ago, they were married at Castle Schwarzau, in, uh, which was her family's home in Austria. Um, when they were on their honeymoon, they went to the Great Marian, Ab uh, Great Marian Shrine of Maria Zell, and he said to his wife, now we must begin to help each other get to heaven. And for the rest of their lives together, they took their marriage vows first and foremost very seriously as a sacrament. Well, three years later, as we know, Franz Ferdinand was murdered at Sarajevo with Sophie, and World War I began. Now, Carl had been trained as a soldier, but uh, like his uncle, he was very much a member of the peace party. Franz Ferdinand had been, on the one hand, very keen on peace, but on the other hand, it believed that a lot of the senior officers of the Austrian army needed to be cashiered quickly because they were inefficient. The war would prove him right, sadly. Um, the war uh, saw his uncle, or sorry, his great uncle, use him as a sort of eyes and ears. They called him Carl the Sudden because he would appear on the different fronts the Italian, the Russian, the Romanian, the Serbian, etc., like that, uh, to survey conditions and report back to the emperor. In time, he began commanding troops in battle, and he got to see firsthand how horrible the war really was, from the white hell of the Tyrol to the stinking marshes of Galicia. Uh, this was an insight most leaders of that war lacked. They uh, missed out, as you might say. Sadly, mm. All right. sadly, the um, the war uh, itself took on a life of its own. Uh, more countries got involved. The numbers of people dying just 
reinforce the bitterness on all sides. And then in 1916, Franz Josef died and Karl became emperor. Well, as I say, he had seen the war with his own eyes. He had two brothers-in-law, uh, Princes Xavier and Sixtus of Bourbon-Parma, his, his wife's brothers, who were in the Belgian army. And he used them as go-betweens with the Allies. Although he informed Kaiser Wilhelm of, in general terms of what he was trying to do and at the Kaiser's approval, uh, this was definitely not to the liking of the German general staff. Uh, we'll see in just a few minutes what came of his peace efforts. Well, we left, uh, we left poor Emperor Karl in the middle of a war, and it was a war that he did everything he could to end. But the problem that he faced was that his German allies, uh, when they were winning, were not interested in peace. And the, uh, the opponents, the Allied opponents, the British, the French, the Americans, the Italians, weren't interested in peace when they were winning. Either side only uh, began to talk about peace when there was a chance they might lose. And this, you see, shows the great difference between Blessed Emperor Karl and the other rulers of that time. He wanted peace. He wanted an end to the dying. He wanted an end to the suffering, which he had seen up front, close, and personal. But there was more to him than this. When he became emperor, he and his wife were crowned apostolic king and queen of Hungary. Now, oaths meant a great deal to the emperor. His marriage vows to his wife, uh, when he became a knight of the Golden Fleece as a teenager, he insisted on having the statutes translated from old French into German to make sure that he could live by them before he'd go into the order. So there were no pro forma rituals for him. It was real or it wasn't. So when he became king of Hungary and was crowned and anointed in Budapest, he accepted the fact that he and his peoples were wed like he and his wife, as was she, and that they could not do anything but live for them. used to, a sort of sacrificial, self-sacrificial leadership. And he risked everything for the good of his people, to include his, uh, his peace attempts, which when they were exposed, gave him all sorts of trouble. Uh, because at that point, everyone was, oh, well, you see, his heart's not really in the war. Well, it wasn't. He wanted to get out of the war. The war was a terrible thing. Tons of people were dying for no real reason. Uh, he wanted, like his uncle, uh, Franz Ferdinand, to federalize the country, but there wasn't much he could do about that unless the Hungarians agreed because of his coronation oath. Um, as the war went on, things got tighter and tighter and more difficult. The 
blockade became tighter. But in all likelihood, they would have survived it had it not been for one man who made himself truly Kaiser Karl's nemesis. That was our very own president, Mr. Woodrow Wilson, who um, hated monarchy, hated the Habsburgs, and hated Catholicism. So, you know, what are you going to do? In time, he made it obvious that there would be no peace until the Habsburgs and the Hohenzollerns were disposed of. Well, that happened. Uh, Winston Churchill, who can't be accused of being too pro-Habsburg or too pro-German, declared that it was precisely Wilson's insistence on this that paved the way for Hitler and Stalin. And I really don't see how you could see it any other way. So in other words, the situation that those of us my age lived with, and really, if you look at what's going on in Ukraine now, has continued to the present, we can thank our dear Mr. Wilson for. Nevertheless, um, Carl refused to abdicate. He withdrew from government, uh, but he refused to abdicate the thrones of either Austria or Hungary. And in uh, March of 1919, he went into exile in Switzerland. This was a pretty comfortable exile. He could have stayed there. Um, oddly enough, it was the first time he was able to give his entire attention to his children. And it was a period that they remembered very, very fondly. Because they had their parents all of themselves and didn't have to share them with the world and found out their parents were actually quite nice people. But um, this had other things uh, to deal with. The peace treaties were being signed at the The second uh, major difficulty was that Hungary was taken over in 1920 by a communist government, by, led by a man named Bela Kuhn. It only lasted a few months, but it killed a lot of people. It was pretty dreadful. He was defeated by a man who had been a close friend of the emperor's, Admiral Horthy, who in fact had been his ADC at his wedding. Horthy had always promised that if he had the chance, he would help him get back to power. Well, Carl believed him, and so in March of 1921, through a real cloak and dagger set of adventures, he got back to Budapest and saw Horthy and said, all right, I'm here. He had assurances from the uh, French prime minister that uh, he would have France's support if he succeeded. Horthy refused, and he went back to Switzerland. The Swiss were getting a little suspicious of him. So what he did was he um, tried again <laughs> with Hungary, uh, this time with his wife. They raised an army. They were defeated again through treachery. And this time, the, uh, this time the Allies were not fooling around. Basically, unless Carl and Zita would abdicate their thrones, they would have to leave Europe. So they shipped them off to the lonely island of Madeira. But wait, there was more. They couldn't have any money. Their supporters in Austria and Hungary and elsewhere couldn't sell them anything. 
What did that mean? Well, it meant they had nothing to live on, really, except what people gave them. They couldn't stay in the hotel in Funchal. They had to move up to a donated summer house up in the hills. It was wet and damp. The Carl had bad lungs because of the 1918 flu and some other things. And in a few weeks of living up there, he caught pneumonia. He lingered and lingered very painfully. He never gave up. He never never lost his, his sense of good humor, as it were. But, sadly, he, um, he died. When he was dying, of course, he had a, a attending chaplain. He had the, uh, the Blessed Sacrament near him and all that. But he said that he was dying, that his, or rather, he said that he was suffering that his peoples might come back together. You see, it simply was not possible for Carl to do what they wanted any more than he could have divorced his wife. And if it took dying for his peoples to save them, he was willing to do it because he saw his own sovereignty as a participation in the kingship of Christ. And just as Christ died for all mankind, well, Carl died for his peoples. That's a very strange notion for those of us living today. We're used to leaders who don't mind having us die for them, not the other way around. At any rate, one of the odd things that happened the day he died was that he told his wife, well, as soon as I'm dead, contact the king of Spain and he'll take care of you. Uh, she said, how could you say this? Well, I've just spoken to it. You couldn't have spoken to it. I did. Just contact him. Well, there she is, a widow, a child on the way. What could it hurt? She contacts him. He says, the king of Spain, Alfonso Thirteenth. he says, not a problem. I'll send a warship to pick you up. And when the British said they wouldn't let them leave unless she renounced the throne for herself and her children, King Alfonso said, I'm sending a warship to pick them up. If you fire on it, you're at war with Spain. Well, that may not sound like a big deal, but Britain was bled white by World War I, and they backed down from a fight with Turkey the same year. So it wasn't nothing. So they went back to Spain, and uh, when she saw King Alfonso, she asked him, why did you do this? Zita did. Uh, risk war for us. And he said, well, to tell you the truth, when they, the day they told me your husband was dying, I had the sudden feeling that if I didn't take care of you people, the same thing would happen to my wife and children. So they sort of rolled their eyes at each other. Uh, they lived in Spain for eight years, um, where Zita educated her children, brought in various teachers. You could see her as a uh, patroness of uh, homeschooling as well. And then they moved to Belgium. Uh, the Archduke Otto, the oldest boy, uh, attended school in Belgium. Um, but that's a whole other story, how they fled uh, in 1940 from the invading Germans, made their way to uh, the United States and Canada, how Otto worked with FDR and ended up keeping Austria independent, and a lot of other stories like that. We'll save those for another day. What's important for us in the here and now is that Carl, in his manner of death, showed us, in his manner of life, 
showed us a way of living like a true cavalier, a true hero in modern days. Uh, you look at his devotion, you look at his chivalrous nature and his chivalrous manner, you would think, this sounds like St. Louis or, or Charlemagne. No. No, he lived in the day of the telegram and the telephone and the railroad and the automobile. He was modern, as was she. And so they uh, can give us very, very good examples of what to be. Now, as it happens, uh, he has two of the necessary miracles for canonization. The first, uh, which took place in the 50s, was for a Brazilian nun named Sister Zita, oddly enough, who uh, had a, uh, a terminal disease. She prayed to him. She was cured. Uh, she, Zita heard of it and said, ah, once again, he's thinking of me as always. Uh, and then the other, well, the other we'll find out about momentarily. Now we come to the final part of our story, and yet it's the continuing part. Looked at one way, uh, Zita and Carl's lives were tragedies, mm, but not really. Uh, he is certainly, she po quite possibly uh, is in heaven. Um, and that by itself is enough to lift their lives out of, uh, out of the tragic sphere. But there is a tragedy connected to their story. It's ours. Because, of course, their defeat and the defeat of everything they represented is something that the price has been paid for by every generation that's lived since. Obviously, their enemies didn't really realize what they were doing. Or maybe they did. At any rate, a great deal of the problems we have today come from the fact that they did not succeed in what they tried to do. However, there's a great deal we can glean out nevertheless. It is interesting to me that the cultus of Kaiser Karl, since uh, his beatification in 2004 by John Paul II, and very speedy second miracle, incidentally, which uh, was the miraculous healing of a Baptist lady in Florida who subsequently converted. Um, that, that's an interesting thing because his cultus has grown so rapidly in the United States. There are, as of last week, 25 shrines in his honor scattered around the United States. That's quite amazing. Uh, it's amazing that a man who fought the United States, was our enemy, should um, 
commands such respect, such veneration in our country. And I think the reason is not too hard to discover. Uh, on some level, we yearn for the kind of leadership he represents, for the kind of fatherhood in leadership that he doesn't have. It's one of my little jokes that uh, the United States, the world's longest lived and most successful Oedipus complex. But um, there's a certain amount of truth to that in the sense that we've always been a nation of orphans. And certainly that is a deep feeling that Kaiser responds to. But there's more, there's much more. As a patron today, when uh, families are so disrupted, when husbands and wives don't see eye to eye and the divorce rate is so high and people don't even know how to be married, they can get married, being married is something different. Uh, and for that matter, the um, when parents very often don't know what they're doing with their children. In all of these areas, both Carl and Zeta are tremendous examples. He is a tremendous example of the sort of sacrificial leadership, as I say, that we don't have, but that we actually can exercise, those of us who are in any position at all, from father of a family to manager to employer to whatever. We can definitely look to him as an example of what leadership should be, without a doubt. Uh, more than that, we can look to... Um, we can look to him as an example for soldiers. Now, we live in a time when uh, warfare is pretty nasty, but it's all very remote, you know, the drones and so forth. Um, but Kaiser Karl did everything he did to mitigate the consequences of war. He was chivalrous toward his defeated enemies. Um, he was, in short, everything a soldier should be very desirous of getting the mission accomplished on the one hand, but on the other hand, very solicitous for the welfare of his men. So those are all marvelous things. Beyond that, though, it's important to remember that neither he nor his wife are mere historical figures. They are living beings, intercessors, for whose prayers we can ask as we go through our lives in this strange time in which we find ourselves. Don't let's hesitate. Uh, if you're interested in exploring his cultus, go to blessedemperorcharles.org, which will put you onto the American website of the Gebetsliga, and you'll find lots and lots and lots of information about him. Uh, I think you will... Um, You'll find that he's a far more compelling character than I can make him appear in a few minutes. But get to know him as a friend among the saints, and I guarantee you, you'll get to love him. Same with Zeta. There is another uh, element, though, that has to be pointed out, and that is that his peoples, whom he died for, are today caught in a terrible vice between Russia and a depraved West. Um, and yet, ironically, there are certain signs of sanity amongst various of the politicians in Central Europe. So we should pray to him 
for those places too. Not just because it would be nice to see the areas he ruled stable and sane, but also because if Central Europe regains its sanity, it could act as a catalyst and uh, a symbol for the rest of Europe. And if Europe as a whole regains its sanity, that would be a great thing for our Europe beyond the seas. Because, you know, ladies and gentlemen, much as it will surprise us, we are Europeans. Uh, DNA, language, culture, all that sort of thing. Um, and in that, it's interesting to note that Kaiser Karl's predecessors on the throne of Austria from 1829 to 1914 poured $26 million into the Church of the United States through what was called Leopoldine Stiftung, the Leopoldine Foundation. They founded 400 parishes in America, funded 300 missionaries, including St. John Neumann and Bishop Araga. They did really an amazing number of things and without any hope of any kind of reward. It was that kind of foundation upon which Kaiser Karl built. And so we Americans do have a very special connection with him and with, and with the House of Habsburg, even, well, us American Catholics. So remember, too, that like old Austria-Hungary, the United States are a very, a very varied place. A lot of a lot of division, a lot of differences. Uh, do let's pray to Emperor Karl for unity amongst us, for peace, for people not going mad. That was something that the Habsburgs constantly worked on. It's something I think we could use a lot of today. Quiet sanity is not a bad thing, really and truly, ladies and gentlemen. I, th I guess in summing up, the best thing I can say is that with Kaiser Karl, with Blessed Emperor Charles, we have an advocate who understands, as few historic figures might be expected to, the drama of modern life. Uh, I really believe that if you're a parent and you find yourself worried about your children, if you're a husband and you don't know what you're going to do with your marriage, if you're any of these things, a son who is unhappy with his uh, home situation, again, turn to Blessed Emperor Charles. He's always happy to hear from And, after all, he, uh, he's already got two Americans uh, down. Why shouldn't someone in this audience be the third? And with that, I thank you very much.